This is an ABC podcast. If I asked you to give me a thumbnail sketch of what analytic philosophy means, you'd probably have trouble fitting it on a thumbnail. We all talk routinely about analytic philosophy, and we all imagine we know what we're on about when we use the term. But really, what analytic philosophy is and where it comes from takes a bit of unpicking, and we're going to be doing some of that unpicking today in The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. I came across a great article a little while back in the journal blog Noteworthy. The title is The Never-Ending Death of Analytic Philosophy. And it talks about the way that analytic philosophy has been periodically pronounced dead or dying for pretty much as long as it's been alive. Of course, analytic philosophy is still very much with us, but it faces a set of challenges today that are perhaps more formidable than anything it's had to deal with in the past. The author of the article is Christoph Schiringer. He's Assistant Professor in Philosophy at the New College of the Humanities in London, and he joins me now. Christoph, welcome to the program. Uh, Very good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So what is analytic philosophy, or or at least what qualities or strategies do you think that analytic philosophers are invoking when they identify as such? So this is interestingly actually a question that um, gives analytic philosophers quite a bit of headache, this question, what is analytic philosophy? Um, I think interestingly so, because uh, a a sort of approach that comes naturally to analytic philosophers is to look for uh, necessary and sufficient conditions when it comes to answering questions of the form, what is X? Um, And so to to come up with a kind of set of watertight criteria so that if you take any philosopher uh, and you run this criterion, then you will get um, all and only the analytic philosophers um, out. And this turns out to be very difficult to do. Um, So if you have if you cast your net quite wide and you have a criterion, something like you know, users arguments that are based on linguistic usage, then you end up including people like Aristotle and you obviously don't want Aristotle to be an analytic philosopher because analytic philosophy is a, a movement that's supposed to have emerged in the 20th century. Um, but then if you focus your criterion too narrowly, you'll end up missing out all sorts of people that would seem to be part of analytic philosophy. So this is an issue that makes it actually very difficult for people to say what analytic philosophy is. And and so we get some responses um, that try to do something very subtle. So for example, um, Hans-Johan Glock, who's an analytic philosopher, wrote a book called What is Analytic Philosophy? And he proposed that the way to understand what analytic philosophy is, is in terms of uh, family resemblances. So a concept from uh, one of the really important, but also quite uncharacteristic analytic philosophers, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, so the idea is that, well, you can't really come up with necessary and sufficient conditions, but there's a kind of a loose array of different overlapping resemblances. So there's this sort of um, difficulty about actually saying what analytic philosophy is, particularly for analytic philosophers, given the, the way that they like to try and define things. Um, but on the other hand, it's actually in some sense, very obvious what analytic philosophy is, because as you were alluding to, there is a kind of a style and there's a kind of recognisable way of going about things. Um, there's a particular way of speaking, a particular way of arguing. There's a particular sort of format of journal article that goes with analytic philosophy. So in a sense, there's very little difficulty about saying who are the people who are analytic philosophers. The difficulty comes in specifying more precisely 
what the criteria are supposed to be. Okay, well, analytic philosophy has more than one origin narrative. Some people situate its birth back in the latter part of the 19th century with the German mathematician Gottlob Frege. Some look to the early 20th century and the work of figures like Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore. But you see analytic philosophy really getting started in the mid-20th century in the aftermath of the Second World War. Tell me about that. What do you see happening there that inaugurates this movement? So really what happens is, I mean, it's possible even to put a quite precise date on this, and that's um, 1949, which is the publication of a collection of classic essays in philosophy that's co-edited by uh, Herbert Feigl, who was one of the members of the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivists, and the American philosopher uh, Wilfred Sellers. And what they do essentially is they inaugurate uh, a new sort of conception of philosophy, uh, and they call this analytic philosophy, in which a number of strands, a number of movements uh, from the early 20th century are fused together. So there's a kind of deliberate act of welding these things together in a way that hadn't been done before. So you get Russell, the logico-analytic method, um, you get Morian, uh, common sense analysis, you get logical positivism, um, and then um, various American approaches, so pragmatism and realism in the American tradition. And so what really characterizes this sort of amalgam, this coming together of all these strands, is that is what it excludes in particular, which is strands in American philosophy that had been uh, very present also in journal publications and in, in the academy until then. Um, so um, more ambitious forms of what was then called speculative philosophy. So philosophy that constructed um, grand metaphysical systems, various other things go by the board. So for example, Indian philosophy, contemporary discussions of Indian philosophy go by the board and so on. And so you get this one single thing now called analytic philosophy. And it's really worth pointing out that the term analytic philosophy is basically not used before 1945. There are one or two mentions. Um, and in fact, one of the earliest, which is the English idealist philosopher R.G. Collingwood in 1933, he uses it as a pejorative term to group together a, a bunch of his colleagues who he thinks are doing uh, work in philosophy that's going in the wrong direction. Um, and something that's really important for this act of um, welding together of these approaches to create this thing, analytic philosophy, which then becomes institutionally dominant in the United States, is that there's a particular climate that really favours this, and that's the climate of McCarthyism. So we see actually in the 50s particular uh, philosophers being persecuted directly by the Committee on Un-American Activities. And so one of its major casualties is a philosopher called Forrest O. Wiggins, now completely unknown, who was uh, the first black philosopher to be appointed to a professorship in the United States and also the first to be fired from one for a speech that he gave about American foreign policy. And um, so people like him who were Marxists or broadly on the left were sort of direct casualties of this. But more generally, the, the importance of McCarthyism was that there was a kind of climate of fear and philosophers were actually particularly hard hit by this sort of climate of suspicion. They were expected to do things like sign loyalty oaths, so with these kind of quite vague wordings about, you know, not doing anything un-American. And we find different people responding in different ways to this. So um, Alfred Tarski, the Polish logician, for example, actually signs a loyalty oath. Um, Rudolf Carnap, who was one of the members of the Vienna Circle, turned down a position in order not to have to sign one. But all this is really just indicative of a sense that you didn't want to put your head above the parapet in certain ways if you were going to say something that was going to have controversial political implications. Um, and here, something which is actually odd about analytic philosophy um, becomes important. So it's odd in that 
much of the sort of core of analytic philosophy in the United States after the Second World War was constituted by emigres from Europe who were fleeing persecution in Europe. And they had been, some of them, quite politically radical, or at least quite politically committed. But what happens after the war is that analytic philosophy becomes essentially apolitical in its self-image. So it holds itself completely aloof from engagement in social and political issues. And for that reason, obviously, it's able to survive in the climate of McCarthyism in a way that um, some of its competitors don't. Does that apolitical self-understanding have something to do with analytic philosophers shrinking from political engagement because of McCarthyism or because many of the leading philosophers were European immigrants who were presumably still deeply affected by the war? Or is it something coded into the practice of analytic philosophy itself? So I think it's not just a matter of um, shrinking from political engagement, um, actually. And you can see that if you look at certain figures in the history, also post-war. So somebody like um, Hilary Putnam, who was a, a very prominent analytic philosopher, was, um, was a Marxist and was very explicit about his Marxist views. So that was entirely possible for him. I think it's much more a matter of intellectual culture and there's a kind of unspoken and even a sort of unwitting commitment to a certain kind of political orientation that comes with analytic philosophy as it, as it develops after the war, you know, after the sort of act of baptism, when it, when it becomes a thing and it has its own name. And you find that analytic philosophers, when they're asked in the 1950s and 1960s about the relation between philosophy and politics and their own views about whether philosophy ought to be politically engaged and in what sense it is and so on, you get some quite interesting answers. So people like um, A.J. Eyre in England, for example, and um, Stuart Hampshire, who'd been involved in intelligence in the Second World War and who had been responsible for interviewing um, Nazi war criminals after the war, and so had a particular kind of sensitivity to totalitarianism. Some of these figures like Eyre and Hampshire, when they're asked, you know, what's the sort of natural uh, political orientation of analytic philosophy, um, they'll say it's liberalism. And they'll often say something like, well, it's liberalism because um, liberalism is just obviously true. And the reason that liberalism is obviously true is that it's, it is just the commitment to allowing each person their say and to allow the free dissemination of opinions in something like a marketplace of ideas. And you see this in Hampshire really underwritten by a kind of horror of totalitarianism, which he associates um, also with non-analytic philosophy. So there's, for example, a piece by Hampshire, which is a review of a book on Heidegger um, called Philosophy as Superman, uh, Philosopher as Superman where he suggests that there's a kind of a way of doing philosophy that's associated with people like Martin Heidegger, who was in fact a, a card-carrying member of the Nazi party, which is just sort of inherently totalitarian. And then there's a correct way of doing philosophy, which is the sort of Anglophone tradition associated also actually with the older tradition of British empiricism. So um, analytic philosophy in some of its strands has these quite deep historical connections with, for example, the work of John Locke and David Hume in the British empiricist tradition. And there's a sort of sense that, well, there's this, there's this okay way to go about doing philosophy, and that's what we're doing. It's analytic philosophy, which is, you know, the sort of open examination of claims clearly expressed and so on, on which anybody can, can come and have their say. And then there's this sort of nasty, oracular, totalitarian approach to philosophy from the other side. 
And, and I guess that, as you've pointed out, that the, the marketplace of ideas model itself, I mean, the marketplace of ideas is like every other market. It's far from being an, an apolitical space and certain people or certain classes of people are, uh, are excluded from it. And we'll, we'll get onto that in a minute. But I want to talk a little bit about the uh, much heralded death of an- analytic philosophy because almost as soon as an- analytic philosophy comes into being, people are pronouncing it all over. And um, Richard Rorty famously in, in 1979 in Philosophy and the, and the Mirror of Nature, which is a book that I love, he, he says that analytic philosophy no longer exists except in some stylistic or sociological way. What's he talking about there? Um, so Rorty is a very interesting case because he's someone who's very much on the inside of analytic philosophy. And what you find Rorty sort of over the years coming to see is that there's something very curious about the history of analytic philosophy after the Second World War, which is that there's a kind of continuity in terms of methods, in terms of ways of speaking. Of course, one thing that's crucial is the use of logic and of logical formal notation, um, which sort of runs through the history of analytic philosophy. But Rorty notices that something like every 10 years, um, analytic philosophers change their mind about what the fundamental methodology is and what the fundamental problems are that they're trying to solve. And he notices this and he says, you know, by 1979, when he writes this book, which makes a very big impact on analytic philosophy, because it's seen by many as, um, as they would put it, you know, soiling, soiling the nest, soiling one's own nest. I don't think it was Rorty's intention, but he's trying to bring out that there's this a tendency for analytic philosophy constantly to reinvent itself uh, in the light of these sort of methodological crises, which actually go right back to the publication in 1951, so this is right at the, you know, when analytic philosophy has only just been announced as a, as a, as a thing, Willard Van Orman Quine's paper, Two Dogmas of Empiricism. Um, so this is a paper by one of the really leading analytic philosophers, which calls into question one of the most fundamental principles of analytic philosophy, which is um, the possibility of conceptual analysis. And from there on, there's a sort of fallout as a result of which this actually a very important characteristic of all the movements before the Second World War that, that then later go on to constitute analytic philosophy when they're brought together, um, which is their tremendous sort of methodological self-awareness. And this is the thing that makes these analytic philosophy movements so exciting and radical is that they think very carefully about you know, what is philosophy, how does one do it, and so on. That sort of methodological self-questioning starts to go out of the window, was sort of gradually abandoned after the Second World War. And I, I think what Rorty means by saying it's in the end, really a sociological phenomenon is that the people doing it know who they are and they recognize each other as doing the same thing and they cite the same sort of authors and they publish in the same journals and there's a sense of kind of common enterprise, but the sense of kind of common core is starting to be lost. Um, and this goes together with a tendency towards um, hyper-specialization, which is not at all confined to uh, philosophy. You see it in many academic disciplines. We you see all of a sudden people working on quite small topics in isolation from each other and finding it you know, inevitably very difficult to communicate and to understand how their work fits together with what other people are doing. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. My guest this week is Christoph Schiringer from the New College of the Humanities in London. We're talking about analytic philosophy and the way it just keeps on keeping on, even though nobody can quite tell you exactly what it is, and plenty of doomsayers have been keen to read it its last rites. Christoph Schiringer has written a really nice article on this, and we've posted a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. (music) 
one of analytic philosophy's major achievements in the latter part of the 20th century is um, the invention of continental philosophy, which I'm caricaturing things a little in putting it that way. But there is a sense, isn't there, in which continental philosophy is, is brought into being as a genre by its, its sworn enemies. Yeah, so continental philosophy is another sociological phenomenon in this sort of sense, right? Because there's a, a problem here, which is that some people in analytic philosophy want to say, and this is in recognition of the kind of self-questioning that's that's going on, um, they want to say, well, let's forget all about analytic philosophy. There isn't really a distinction between analytic and continental philosophy anymore. You know, now analytic philosophers write about Heidegger and, and maybe even Derrida, and there's there's some kind of cross-pollination. The problem is you can't just deny that there's such a thing as continental philosophy, because there now is. Right? So even though it's a sort of misnomer, because actually... Um, many of the key figures in analytic philosophy, of course, are continentals. Right. So, you know, uh, Frege, Carnap, Schlick, Weismann, Feigl, Reichenbach, uh, Tarski, Twardowski, Leschniewski. You know, th- these are not uh, anything but continental philosophers in the sense of where they come from geographically. Um, but the thing is that the distinction now can't just be jettisoned because it's exactly right, as you say, that it's analytic philosophers who created this label continental philosophy, but basically everything that was excluded. Um, So it's a very strange umbrella term because it covers these different movements like phenomenology, deconstruction, post-structuralism, many of which actually have figures in them who would dispute that they were doing philosophy or would problematize the idea that they were doing philosophy. So someone like Michel Foucault, for example, doesn't really think of himself in any straightforward uh, way as a philosopher. But we're now stuck with this sort of lumped together group and you now have you know, MA programs in continental philosophy, you have uh, journals for continental philosophy. Um, And so this is very much a a reality, even though it's the creation of analytic philosophers. And if you look on um, French or German Wikipedia, and you look at philosophie continentale or um, continental philosophy, they just say up front, this is a term used by analytic philosophers to designate, and then they will list those various (laughs) movements that I just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, I think, that Nobody, I think, ever refers to themselves as a continental philosopher. It's a bit like postmodern. You know, I've never heard any philosopher self-identify as a postmodernist, even though postmodern philosophers get endlessly talked about. Right, and Derrida even identifies himself as an analytic philosopher at some mm-hmm. point at a, yeah. a conference in Oxford where they where they get some analytic philosophers to speak to him, <laughs> and he responds and he says, "Well, if if this is what you're doing, if if it's all about." you know, the analysis of concepts, then I'm an analytic philosopher. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit lost now. So how are we going then with analytic philosophy? Is, is it one of those, um, has its death been prematurely announced? I mean, you, you've written about the challenges that analytic philosophy faces in accommodating itself to the modern world. How well is it doing in, in facing up to them? Well, so I think, um, I mean, there are enormous prospects here, I think, because one thing that's really notable about analytic philosophers and, and about analytic philosophy, um, and I saw this actually in the reaction to, to that piece that I wrote, um, is that there was enormous engagement by analytic philosophers with these sort of questions of how do we face um, the challenges that are now coming at us from things like feminism and critical race theory, um, and just you know the very fundamental question that analytic philosophy must face, which is that even in the academy, analytic philosophy is sort of extraordinarily white and male-dominated, and attempts to to deal with that have so far not produced very significant change. And 
I think it is one of the sort of great features actually of analytic philosophy. And this goes back to the movements that I was talking about, you know, the earlier movements, um, Russell Moore, um, uh, the Vienna Circle, the Polish logicians, all these people, although there are all sorts of differences between them, there's a commitment to very rigorous questioning of every claim and very rigorous pursuit of the truth. And I think there's a something that analytic philosophy has to get across, which is the danger of supposing that because it's subscribed to a, a sort of marketplace of ideas conception of discourse, that it has already included all voices within it. Um, the sort of thing that you see in very stark form in the 1950s in this kind of Cold War climate, where well, we're the good guys, you know, we're already <laughs> we're already including every everyone. We have this open forum of debate. Well, clearly, and we and you can see this happening now within analytic philosophy. People are recognizing that the points of uh, feminists and critical race theorists that you can have this sort of illusion that everyone is already being included, uh, when actually the sort of universal humanity that's being included um, is actually coloured white without you necessarily being aware of that. I think analytic philosophers are becoming very sensitive to that and they're hearing those arguments. And um, there's now a question of how you incorporate this within analytic philosophy without, in some sense, sort of colonising these other discourses and, and turning them into the kind of discourse that analytic philosophers are comfortable with. Um, so using their kind of traditional methods of, you know, the and the method of counterexamples and um, particular kind of ways of arguing, um, which can make it actually difficult for those voices to be heard. So, so I think what needs to happen is this is a kind of a dialogue in which you know analytic philosophers are able to open themselves up much more. And I think I think this is something that is happening now, but it's happening slowly because it requires you know mastering other discourses and it requires speaking to people in registers that are different from what you're used to and so on. But I think there is tremendous promise there. Whether, whether in the end there will still be then um, such a thing as analytic philosophy or whether it will transform itself so much that then that label will no longer really be applicable, um, I think that's an open question. Well, the, the post-colonial critique seems to pose a particular challenge because I've, I've had guests talking from time to time on this program about the ways that the history of Western philosophy and the history of colonialism are inextricably linked. And we keep coming back to this idea that philosophy itself is in some sense a colonial project. And you can talk about bringing uh, Indian philosophy or Asian or African philosophy into the tent, as it were. But the tent is still Western philosophy. And if you're, a, if you're an African philosopher who wants to be taken seriously at Oxford or Cambridge or Princeton, then you better have something clever to say about Kant. Is that the sort of thing you're getting at there? Yeah, so there's a difficulty actually about the very concept Western philosophy, I think. Right. Um, So that's been constructed in a particular kind of way. There's a sense in which there's clearly a a European tradition of philosophy. So if we think of Greece, even ancient Greece being in Europe, we have this tradition that comes down from um, Plato and Aristotle. We then get the idea that this is aptly characterized as Western philosophy. Um, But that's quite odd because, for example, a, a very important Part of that tradition is the contribution made by um, Arabic philosophers mm-hmm. um, or philosophers in the Islamic tradition, um, such as um, Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd um, in the what in Europe is called the medieval period. But they're usually not considered to be Western philosophers, right? Even though some of them are, are operating in in Spain, which is about as far west as you can get in Europe, um, and so on. So there's a particular kind of way of thinking about Western and then non-Western. 
which suggests that there's this great Western tradition and it needs to um, now make room for these other traditions. Um, and we also then get the, a tendency to think in terms of traditions, which can be unhelpful because analytic philosophers actually have until very recently not really thought of themselves as a historical tradition. They've they've thought much more in terms of, you know, what's going on in the present? What are the current um, debates to engage in within the, within the discipline? And so there's a very difficult shift that has to happen to get from, um, we're not going to do merely analytic philosophy on its own, but we're going to do all these other traditions. Um, because why, you know, why must it be that we have to think of what philosophers are doing as belonging to traditions necessarily, and not everybody wants to do that, including in parts of the world that are not designated as the West. So I think the challenges there are really huge, and it's important to recognize that, for example, I mean, if we look at Plato and Aristotle, these philosophers were operating in a slave society, so their whole conception of what it is to be a human being and what it is to do well as a human being actually presupposes the idea that there are others who are not really designated as fully human, who are there to supply our needs. Um, so the whole kind of economic system of needs is sort of fueled by this um, class of people who are not actually relevant to ethical questions and so on. Um, and we see again in John Locke, um, very, very important figure politically because he's practically the author of, um, well, he's the author of the Constitution of Carolina, but also practically the author of some of the founding documents of the, of the United States when it becomes independent. His conception of private property is one that's in many ways closely linked with some sort of fundamental commitments of, of the empiricism that he promotes in theoretical philosophy. And so we have to you know, learn to unpick all this stuff and, and think about it critically. But I think the thing that we absolutely must avoid is this notion that the way to decolonize the curriculum and to deal with the sort of colonial nature of philosophy is just to put lots and lots of different traditions side by side uh, and to include lots more things and to include things that are not Western. But a thing that has to happen is that the so-called Western tradition or the European tradition of philosophy has to be studied in a way um, that's much more critical. And that can be something that I think, I mean, pedagogically speaking, makes the study of European philosophy actually much more interesting mm -hmm. for students yeah. because they have to think constantly about um, you know, what sort of presuppositions are operating in the background here, which are not necessarily articulated. And that's one of the things that in reading philosophical texts, we train, train students to do above all. Well, one thing that speaks to the ongoing health of analytic philosophy is that it dominates the world of philosophy journals and, and academic philosophy departments. How ironclad is that dominance these days, would you say? I would say it still continues to look pretty ironclad. Um, so if you look at um, you know, initiatives taken by some of the top journals, so we see the journal Mind, for example, um, now explicitly stating that it accepts submissions um, in um, philosophical traditions or using philosophical approaches other than analytic philosophy. But its editors are still analytic philosophers and there's very little evidence of any work actually getting published that's manifesting those other approaches. So, you know, this is a process that one could imagine getting some momentum, but it's going to take a great deal more than what's happening at the moment. It's the sense in which certain top journals have sort of emerged from within the analytic tradition and they've that's what they've always done. Um, it's very difficult then for them to transform themselves in such a way that, that they're now representative of, of, of a wider range of traditions. So I think what we'll need to see is a kind of a transformation in the whole landscape of journal publishing so that we see actually um, journals that are not so closely associated with analytic philosophy gaining in prestige, as well as, uh, you know, some of these top journals in analytic philosophy opening up in the ways that they're now starting to do. 
Christoph Schuringer. He's a philosopher based at the New College of the Humanities in London. And if you'd like to read his article, The Never-Ending Death of Analytic Philosophy, we've got a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. It's well worth a read. Coming up next week, we talk a lot about race in Australia, but how well do we talk about it? And how willing are we to examine how well we talk about race? It's a tricky question for a number of reasons that include racism, of course, but also the fact that there's a sense in which race doesn't really exist. So how do we talk about it? That's The Philosopher's Zone next week with me, David Rutledge. In the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter at David P. Zone. Bye for now. <laughs>